The following podcast is brought to you by cdkoffers.com. Use offer code DIESHRING for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. All right, on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and today, as always, I will let my guest introduce himself. I'm Josh uh, from NFC Systems slash Skyreach PC. So you were on over a year ago, actually, and it's funny. I thought about having you on again just because I was like, you know, I don't want to do a typical episode. I think I want to shake it up a bit. And I realized, you know, since you were on, I, I think a lot has changed in the graphics card landscape, especially <laughs> when it comes to small form factor building. And I was, I really wanted to get someone on whose opinion, you know, is all about thermals. And I mean, you know, just as an example, like, I like I'll hold this up. I have a 6,700 XT that was sent to me that I can review. This is one of the smaller models. And yet, this thing is massive. It is gigantic. This is, and this is the same die size as, you know, around a lot of other previous. Uh, I mean, it's bigger than my what my Radeon Seven is. I think, despite just having two fans, it's it's gigantic. You know, and it's, this is considered a smaller card. It's disgusting. I mean, especially <laughs> compared to the thirty ninety. It is a smaller yes. card. Weighs like <laughs> three hundred pounds less too, but. It's it's really frustrating to me. Um, I think the 10 series was sort of the golden era for small form factor GPU um, because you had cards that undervolted really well. They performed phenomenally well compared to last generation. They mm -hmm. ran significantly cooler quiet. And on top of all that, manufacturers were experimenting making truly small form factor cards with them yeah. and going crazy and putting giant coolers on it. But I think that the longer cards sell better. And um, I do some work for Sapphire on the side, some um, product design work. And I, I that's tested their 6800 like XT Kong. Nitro, by the way. Like yeah. there's, it, it's, it was uh, as big as the card behind me is, the 6800 XT Nitro was, it was, it was, I actually used an extender cable to test it in my, <laughs> <laughs> my desktop. And for those listening, I used an extender cable that was pretty expensive with like, Power hookups and PCIe 4.0 support. I got the same benchmarks as hardware unboxed, same results. So don't get mad at me for using an extender cable. I used a high quality one, but I had to just to use it in my case. And I, I designed this case to be a little extra big for the future. And yet already there's stuff I can't fit in it. I just think that a lot of the manufacturers on the high ups, the people looking at the pieces of paper, not the enthusiasts who are doing the design work and all that. They just think that bigger sells better. So that's kind of our problem because there's no reason that the 3000 series or the 6000 series from AMD couldn't be smaller. And we've seen some prime examples like the EVGA 3060 Ti XE. Phenomenal card, one of the best small form factor cards ever made. Um, mm -hmm. Performance. The fans are great. The fin design is great. The cooler is fantastic, but they just don't. 
And it's just, it's frustrating, really, to be honest. Well, there's two things I can add on to that, actually. So, first of all, they were making blower coolers for the 3090, and those were discontinued. And I reached out to a couple people, like, I mean, I can guess why they were, guys, but, like, any details. And they're like, oh, they were running over 110 degrees Celsius, <laughs> like, and truly failing. So, I think, yeah. I, I think... A, GA-102, the top Ampere die, does use more energy than previous dies. But when it comes to the AMD side, the explanation I've had is that the board, not necessarily the cooler, but the board for Ampere is really expensive. So the margins behind it aren't as good. And that's something me and Gamers Nexus covered. And so they, they built up these giant coolers to cool Ampere. And AMD's offering doesn't require nearly as much cooling. But they put all this effort into designing a giant cooler for Ampere, and there's a higher margin they can get out of AMD cards. And so at least what I was told is that AIBs were kind of just taking these 3090 coolers, putting them on AMD cards so that they can market them at the same price level and get even and try to make up for some of the margins they weren't getting on Ampere. So a lot of this comes from designing around the idea that they know Ampere is going to sell for a lot, requires a big cooler. So why not put it on AMD's cards, too? Which I think you see that in a lot of previous generations. They just throw the same cooler on every card eventually. For sure. Absolutely. But yeah, it's it's. I, I think it's just a business decision at the end of the day. Because what I found as well is, like, I've only had the reference cards from NVIDIA. or not the, the Founders Edition so far, mm -hmm. except for that EVGA. And they undervolt extremely well. Better than any GPU I've ever had in my office. In fact, we cut almost, like, 27% off the top end of the power while keeping a slight overclock on the 3090. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm really impressed. So again, there's no reason they couldn't have a premium small form factor card. And that's what I've been yeah. trying to tell Sapphire especially, is that small form factor isn't cheap. You don't mark the card down and yeah. have a sell as a budget. You can actually sell more for it if you actually say, look, this is a super premium cooler, super premium board, than you would those big giant ones. But they don't, they don't get that. Some of the people get it not the people at the very top end. And I'm really hoping that will change. Well, I think some of the mentality for why this happens comes from the idea that if our card, you know, Gamers ne Nexus or Hardware and Box Benchmarks, 30 AIB cards, and ours wins by 0.1%, mm -hmm. they assume that will get them more sales. And, you know, actually, there's a, there's a lot of people that have bought these cards and then realize they don't fit in their bigger cases at this point. Again, I, I don't have a tiny case. I could not fit the 6800 XT Nitro in it. <laughs> and, and so I think, and, it's, and you see it with motherboard manufacturers as well, where they're just overvolting like crazy at stock i7s. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, and, and sometimes it hurts performance, but they're like, man, but if we win by 0.1%, then it's worth it. But so I think we got, a, a, that was a good conversation, so I just let it roll, but I think we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. It's been a while since you've been on. Uh, the channel has a lot more viewers now, too. Like, why don't you tell people oh, who congratulations. you are? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, God, I don't know. I think we were about, I, I think we were about a fifth the size we are now when we last talked. Um, and, and even back then, though, you were having your products featured online as tech tips. Why don't you tell everybody what you do? Yeah, I do too many things right now. I'm trying to be more laser focused, but I think the main one people know me for right now is I make uh, a luxury boutique small form factor chassis, the Skyreach 4 Mini. And soon I'm going to be releasing the S4T, the Skyreach 4 Tiny. 
which mm-hmm. has a special superpower. It actually transforms into much larger cases. So I'm trying oh. to serve everybody with one concept case. But I've been doing small form factor for forever. <laughs> Since I was in high school, I knew I wanted to make a console PC because I fell in love with console gaming with my friends because mm-hmm. you go over and you play GoldenEye all night long, right? And you get to punch your friend in the arm. But I loved PC gaming. It's just that it was disconnected. So that's since high school, literally, I've been trying to build small console PCs and eventually it turned into a full-time job. So the second well, yeah. thing I do is I do design work for all sorts of companies building small form factor computers. So. Well, yeah, and I know what you mean by that because I remember in high school, I had this cousin who lived in Pennsylvania and he could just throw a PS3 in his backpack and then come visit us in Illinois. And that was very easy. But, oh, you're so much younger than I am. A PS3 in high school. <laughs> wow. <laughs> hey, man, you look good, though. I mean, I, I think that well, would surprise you. people. I'm not that much younger, I don't think. I, I technically had the, I had it all the way back in, uh, well, yeah, which direction do I want to go? I mean, that was a long generation. I had it in middle school, too. Well, I think I dated myself by saying GoldenEye, but... Um... <laughs> I, I've technically played GoldenEye. I was... Not in middle school, though, I'll admit. <laughs> but yeah, no, the N64 is my first console. And, and when, and you know, the, even when I really got into desktop building, the first thing I wanted to do was make the PC smaller. Like, from the start, I'm like, what's the smallest case I can get? I think it was the Rosewell Ranger M, which I recommend as a dirt cheap intro case for people. It's actually can fit a full size graphics card, multiple 120 millimeter fans, and it was half the size of every other desktop. And I just sat there going, so why are the other ones bigger? Right. And it was just small enough I could fit it into a suitcase. And I, you know, I traveled quite a long distance to college at that time. And I, I, I guess what made you. Was it just that you wanted the portability or was it the extra challenge? Because I think a big part of the small form factor building is you get into PC building and then you realize that was easy. And you're like, well, how can I make this much harder on myself? Now, I think that what makes you start on the journey is let's make it smaller. And then once you start doing it, you realize how fun it is cramming all these small parts into it. And people are addicted to this stuff, man. My, my Discord is just balloon full of people that love cramming crazy components into a small case. It doesn't make any sense. It's way overkill for what they're going to use the system for. But it's just a lot of fun. It's just a lot of fun. Well, and I think it really challenges your ability to actually be good at this because anyone can make something bigger and add 2% more performance. But the second you have constraints in every direction, it mm-hmm. actually challenges if you're building something. Because because like I, I don't know that you are if you just have a case the size of a car and you throw a graphics card in it, the wires are everywhere. It's just so satisfying to put it together and be like, I have something twice as powerful as most people that's a third as big. It's, it really is just rewarding to sit there and be like, I made this. And you know what's also a really big draw? Uh, with a normal size desktop case, you have to spend three, four, you can spend $5,000 and not even have the top of the line case or components for that case, right? Mm-hmm. With a small form factor chassis, you can have all the top of line components and you can afford it. You can be building this for $2,700, which is expensive. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but it's top of the line for a small form factor case. So I think that people like matching that premium luxurious feel, but it's in a realm of possibility for them. So uh, that's a good point. Least, actually, 
you know, I think there's plenty of like micro ATX cases and I don't know, 50 to $100 ATX cases that feel high quality. But if you, but if you want really high end quality, the bigger it gets, like those cases can <laughs> cost 500 or more. Whereas you can have something that feels like, you know, the build quality of like a sports car in this size. And now it's a few hundred dollars, which again, is a lot of money for a case. If you are doing a budget build, I'd recommend, you know, make sure the case isn't going to break, but maybe put more money into the components. But yeah, yeah, it's much more obtainable. So I guess to get things going too, let me uh, get to a reader mail question here. So Dr. Forbin writes in and says, I love being a Patreon member. First of all, on the topics and guests like NFC, very interesting as usual. But I selfishly do need to ask Josh for some specific advice. I'm new to small form factor builds. I already bought a Leon Lee TU-150 case, Ryzen 12 core, and Asus ROG X570 DTX board. Uh, since this case doesn't accept a 240 or 280 all-in-one liquid cooler, what modding advice would you give? Any tips before I start cutting it up? Yeah, so the first thing I would say is the TU-150 is brilliantly designed for air coolers. So I would just get the biggest, most giant Noctua cooler that will fit in it, if this was my case. Mm -hmm. But if you do want to liquid cool it, I think you can. You just have to think outside the box a little bit. Um, maybe literally in this case, but what you can do is you can get a, um, a 240 radiator, and then you can flip it towards the front, the side panel that comes off, and then you can mm -hmm. intake and blow towards your components. You have to make a special bracket, but it's real simple. It could be a flat piece of metal, flat piece of acrylic, you can drill into the side flanges on both sides. Voila, you're done. And you can use an all-in-one if you want to, although I wouldn't recommend it. I'd actually go get a nice copper radiator and nice block from Cool Answer EK. Yeah, like I'm that. looking at but, the TU-150 now. This is one that is definitely one of those small form factors that doesn't require a liquid cooler. I think, I think liquid coolers and small form factor are often there so that you... Because, I mean, a lot of these small form factor builds are really, shall we say, creative in how they move the components around <laughs> the cooler. Yeah. Kind of allows you to spread it out, the, yeah. uh, the cooling. Whereas an air cooler is just one big block that you have to do something with. Although, I mean, you could put a gigantic radiator probably in the front of this if you really wanted to, I guess. Yeah, it doesn't draw so there's a constraint to the power supply in the front you could if you can get the right oh, size yeah. one I, there is one product though i want to talk about um that okay. might be helpful for this if i can get around this messy office so those listening um, I want to get walking around his office and i heard his <laughs> yeah. from his bluetooth headset him bend over and pick up something <laughs> uh this is the aquanaut novolo n-o-u-v-o-l-o -O, the aquanaut anyways this is a ddc pump block so you can put this right on your CPU and put a DDC right on your CPU. So it's kind of like a really good all-in-one pump water block. And this is absolutely fantastic for small form factor builds. And I'll give you the part number right here. It's the NV AQN. This is the AM4 version. But this has been awesome because we've been like milling these things ourselves and making our yeah. own integrated top blocks. A couple uh, small form factor designers, but now you can go buy one. So <laughs> way cheaper than ordering one custom from us. You know, I actually have got a horror story for trying to like put a liquid cooling thing on. I I had a 7970 in college and like no money. And I looked into these people that were putting like uh, standard all-in-one liquid coolers on 7970s. And so I was like, let me look into this. And the problem was that the dyes 
height isn't always the same on every board. And you needed to order a copper square as a gap filler <laughs> in between the all-in-one and that. And uh, I honestly don't know what I did wrong. But I did manage to hook it up, and it kind of worked. But it was cooling <laughs> way worse than it was. It was with... cooling. Yeah. <laughs> Quotation marks. <laughs> and after that, the only way the card worked is if I put... I, I just rehooked it up with a, a, a standard air cooler again after that. The only way I got it to work, again, I don't know what I bumped on it or what, is I had to put a zip tie on it and kind of bend the PCB <laughs> up like this. And for some reason, that made some connection <laughs> that kept it working. And so there's always a permanent bend to this card when it went in the case. And it worked for another three years like that. But yeah, I, I don't know what I, I did, but it it worked. Back in the golden age of liquid cooling, where you went to Home Depot and you bought lawn sprinkler parts, <laughs> and car <laughs> cooling parts, and then bolted all together with zip ties as best as you could. <laughs> well... And sometimes it worked, I guess, but actually on the note of like a few years ago. So I remember last time that we spoke, it still was kind of like Intel was the standard for small form factor building. I think yeah, that would have been, yeah, we must have spoken. I don't remember if it was before Zen 2 came out or not. I think it must have been right after Zen 2 came out, but it wasn't like fully ubiquitous yet. Have things changed since then? Because I remember all the way back then, Intel was still basically the standard for small form factor building. I think oftentimes just because there were motherboards around that worked, like, and there just weren't exactly. small form factor AMD motherboards. Has that changed since then? It really has. And it's been actually fairly recent. So AMD motherboards and small form factor AMD motherboards have had a lot of issues. And I don't mm -hmm. want to like scare people away from them. But like when you're buying 25 of them and installing them in right. a hospital, you want them to work. And the AMD ones had weird issues with USB, uh, mm -hmm. Ethernet, just this kind of small stuff that gamers don't really notice, but it absolutely matters in a corporate environment. Now that's changed, and the boards are pretty much rock solid both ways. On top of that, man, AMD is the way to go for small form factor. <laughs> uh, I mean, the processors are incredibly powerful. They run fairly cool. And the best part is, for me, you have great APU choices now. So you can mm -hmm. actually pair a 4750 is it 4750 that's one um, that exists i believe yes that the top end apu and the 4650 and have great processor performance run the integrated apu graphics for a while and then switch over to a gpu if you need one later because mm -hmm. that was kind of a problem with amd is they had no integrated graphics at all and that kind of doesn't allow people to make that step into choosing the right graphics card because graphics card uh, availability as you know is a <laughs> kind of an issue right now <laughs> Well, yeah. And I remember, actually, it's funny you mentioned that. I listened to a little bit of our previous episode, and you were talking about how you did like that since Intel has well, their integrated graphics were serviceable. Now, since then, Intel's graphics have arguably not gotten They've any better. gotten worse, actually. Yeah. yeah. So. But so, I guess, when was the inflection point, in your opinion, where Ryzen... I mean, I assume it was before Zen 3, right? Like, when did it... like? Because I think we talked early 20, like the very beginning of 2020. I think literally you may have been the first guest of 2020. Um, and like at what point was it just becoming silly to use Intel? Definitely after the summer. I, I feel like a lot of the BIOS updates for ASRock, for Gigabyte, and Asus really improved things on my end as a system integrator. And then 
AMD was already better on paper. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of when I shifted over. But of course, with the AMD 5000 series, it's just kind of like Intel, your play, <laughs> your yeah. turn, your move. <laughs> well, that that is uh, the next discussion point, too, that I think we can jump right into. Uh, <laughs> but, but a few days before recording this, the Intel Rocket Lake came out. Do you have any comments about that? I RDNA 2. I think that would be my inflection point. RDNA 2? Yeah. Oh, for, for undervolting and all that. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you're saying when that came out, that's when it was yeah. also obvious for the Ryzen ones to be used. Yeah. 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 I mean, what the, the next point though is like, what do you, what are your thoughts on the current competition between AMD and Intel? I mean, and I think it, you know, when we last spoke, I think a lot of people missed like, oh, well, AMD's more efficient, this, this, this. Why doesn't he talk more about the theory? what was it nano like and it's like well the theory nano does have amperage spikes that just don't work in a 300 watt psu i've i discovered mm-hmm. that myself we're building something for someone and when you build a hundred systems man if one vendors is more reliable you're just gonna go mm-hmm. with that or maybe yeah. reliable is the wrong word finicky less finicky um like what do you think about Intel versus AMD now, though, in 2021, after Zen 3 and Rocket Lake are both out? So I can't really say. I'm not even looking at the new benchmarks for 11 series of Intel yet. I, I don't have them in my office. Um, I haven't, don't have orders for them, so I can't really talk about that. And I don't want to go over my, my, pay bud, my pay grade. So, <laughs> well, What would you say about Comet Lake, though? Did you have any thoughts on that? I really was heavy AMD for the past year, to be honest. Um, I did lots of low-end system integration builds with Intel, mm-hmm. but um, nothing fancy at all. So I don't really <laughs> have good. I don't have good thoughts on it, to be honest. <laughs> oh well, just so you in know. In general, but... yeah, I was going to say in general, um, I still find Intel way easier to tune into Undervolt, mm-hmm. way easier. AMD still requires a lot of attention, but now you can get good results. Do you results think that's because AMD. Intel's actually better at it, or just AMD's comes tuned out of the box? Because I think there's an argument, right, that AMD's, and I was actually really impressed with the voltage control on my 3950X. I mean, there's two ways you could look at it. Oh, I can't really undervolt it much, or you could also look at it from the point of view of you don't need to undervolt it. Yeah, know? no, I agree with that statement. I agree with that statement. But Intel's chips are also pretty good at self-regulating as well. Like, I think my favorite mm-hmm. Intel CPU of all time was the 9900K, which was used in everything. That was used in Apple laptops that were less than an inch thick, you know, to giant desktops. And it was just such an uh, efficient chip by itself. You put it in the box, it could figure out how to tune itself. And, of course, you could go even crazier with it uh, manually. So, I don't know. I just, I just, I guess I'm used to tuning the Intel chips and mm-hmm. AMD is new to me still, and there's a lot of features. There's a lot, a lot of settings of in there. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I can't make. I can't say whether one's easier than not. That's not that kind of guest. I'm not very technical oriented. <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that though, because the way you talk, I mean, some of my guests are people that make purchasing decisions for a company's servers, where they're like, "Yeah, we're mm-hmm. going to buy a hundred thousand of these," and that's the type of decisions they make, and and it. You, you, even you being, you know, a smaller size, shall we say, compared to them, person who makes, you know, dozens of, buys dozens of things at a time instead of one thing that they play with in their office at a time, mm-hmm. 
it's interesting how quickly you seem to make the decisions based on do I need to pay attention to this? Because at least in the server space, it just seems like even though Zen 1 was really, really impressive, people were like, well, let's say if they're still around in a while. Let's see if they keep innovating. And then once Zen 2 came out, you know, technically third gen because Zen Plus was in between them, that's when everyone was like, oh, well, now we're paying attention to AMD. And now when I talk to some of these same server people, they're like, I don't know what Intel's working on right now. Let me know when they catch up again. It kind of sounds like you think the same way. You just don't pay attention to the individual little gens because you you know that right now it's just AMD, basically. Yeah, that's basically it. What I'll say is this. but Whenever you get a chance to look at the Rocket Lake reviews, do note that uh, I think Hardware Unboxed literally titled the review, it's a piece of, and they bleep out the word, but... <laughs> It uses more energy than the Comet Lake 10 core, despite having eight cores, and it actually loses in performance at almost every metric. Not every, there's some where it gains, but it actually manages to go from 10 to eight cores while using 30 watts more energy in some cases, and losing even in gaming in 1080p. <laughs> wow. Wow. So I typically don't look at reviews when I'm purchasing uh, hardware, because I eventually get it all in my office, and then I have my suite of benchmarks that I do for system integration and power consumption and tuning and performance and all that. And um, that's kind of where I disagree that the th 3000 series is so power hungry and inefficient compared to the last series, 20 series, is because it feels like it's a 20 series. This is not correct, but this okay. is kind of how I, my analogy for it. It feels like a 20 series that has been overclocked a lot. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really feel like it's uh, more power hungry. It's just that you can bring, like I said, you can bring it back with some undervolting. And I wonder if that's the case with the 11 series Intel CPUs. They're just basically taking the same kind of technology and running more voltage through it. So they well, they are literally running get... more voltage through <laughs> it, at the very least. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I can't. Um, that's that's what I would test first. What can I do with the undervolting to see? how they compare to the last gen. Well, you know, the next discussion is like RDNA 2 and Ampere. I have to say, though, I think, how would I put it? Look, technically, Ampere's more efficient than Turing. Okay, technically it is, you know, for the performance. But like, for instance, I have an RTX 2060 laptop, and I looked at benchmarks for the RTX 3060 laptops, and if you make them use the same power usage, it's maybe... 15% bigger, or uh, I'm bigger, 15% higher performance. That's not mm -hmm. very good <laughs> for something that's supposed to be on a smaller node. And oftentimes these have bigger, well, I guess they have about the same size dies as what you saw from Turing, actually Turing had bigger dies. You know, so you would think though that hopefully going from a 2060 to a 3060 at the same power usage would be more than below 20%. Yeah. Yeah, you've eloquently uh, given a great analogy whereas mine was kind of fumbling and bumbling, but that's kind of my point. Oh, so you don't see it as this thing to worry about too much, but I mean, but you do see it as, it's just an overclocked terrain generation, but it brings you a lot more performance. And manufacturers care less and less about uh, heat and power consumption now. It seems like for enthusiasts, um, I don't know about them on the server end of things. I have no idea. So well, they're actually they really good. Uh, they actually managed to keep it at 300 watts. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you're right about the AIB thing as well, because 
I mean, maybe the reference 3080 uses 3 to 20 to 340 watts, but EVGA released a BIOS for their 3080 that uses 480 watts. <laughs> Which at that point, I keep, people keep saying in the comments, I don't care about power usage. I'm like, dude, you will if it's using 500 watts. Trust me, <laughs> it's going to heat up your house too much. Yeah, but, and that's something I'm constantly trying to evangelize my small form factor community about. And not just the people who are already small form factor oriented, but people that could be small form factor oriented. Um, we don't need the excess um, power consumption of all these, these these different parts. So we can get things down to run off a of 400 while it's just fine and dandy. We just need the manufacturer to play ball. <laughs> yeah. Quick Jumper writes in and he asks, Considering more efficient design of RDNA 2 cards compared to Ampere, do you see RDNA 2 taking more market share in small form factor builds? Maybe the same question can apply when comparing Tiger Lake to Zen 3, because I don't think e Intel is usable in small form factor anymore. I'm going to answer this from a non-technical perspective. I don't think that it's going to matter as far as the technical, um, the te on the technical side of things. I think it comes down to the marketing side of things and i don't mm -hmm. uh, they care about small form factor like we care about small form factor I, what i would suggest is that undoubtedly there will be some uptick in some communities for amd parts if they're more efficient in small form factor i think that's common sense but at the macro level like you know when we look at like fermi all the way back 10 years ago <laughs> versus what amd had no one seemed to care about the extra power usage back then and <laughs> you know and it's funny about maybe 10 years ago, too, power usage mattered much more for small form factor than I think it does now. I mean, looking at the designs of some of your cases and other cases, it seems like we've found ways to get around almost any level of power usage and fit it into a small build. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I've seen SLI oh, yeah. systems. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm running the top end AMD consumer GP right now in a S4 Mini. Uh, for a client and I just finished another build with it as well. So it's it's possible to have it ha The trick is Can you really use all that power or are we gonna have to detune it so much? You might as well have gone down to a, mm -hmm. a more efficient chip and in some cases many cases going with the top chip actually does matter You get to have that turbo boost of four seconds, which actually might matter in your day-to-day -day usage. Yeah Mango Bandito writes in and says shootout to the oh shout out to the Deus Ex box. Would you work with a company like Zotec or Power Color for a small form factor highest end cards for the 3080 and 3090? Well, I think you've already answered that. You are right. Yeah, not with uh, with only Sapphire at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, so I would absolutely love to work with them. I have sent emails to different card manufacturers. I've designed the perfect small form factor reference that they could use, but um, haven't gotten a lot of responses back. And I think that. That has to do with legal issues as well. But um, hopefully someone passes it on to their engineers and they take some notes. Well, you also asked, though, do you think NVIDIA has pushed the market ever so slightly towards smaller cards, though, long term with their smaller PCB designs on the founders cards and the single 12 pin design? I mean, what do you I mean, which is true. I mean, I talked about how they're expensive to produce, but it is interesting how they designed the 3080 in a way that has like this cutout for a fan mm -hmm. and the 3070 and my 3070 is small, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, like, what do you think about that elaborate PCB design and the, t the idea of a 12-pin connector? Um, those are two separate thoughts. Yeah. Uh, I love the small PCB, obviously, and we've been able to do some fantastic mods 
we're about six months behind on the videos, but the mods that we've been able to do with these cards are unreal. So I'm really excited about it. It certainly shows there's a possibility. There's no reason that manufacturers can make smaller mm -hmm. GPUs that are super efficient. It's just that they don't sell. I, I, th I think they think they don't sell. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is the 12 pin. I hate it. I think it's the worst thing that oh, really? manufacturers ever done. Um, yeah, it's it's the worst. So well, see, I think it's actually <laughs> interesting. I mean, it can provide up to 600. On paper, watts. it is. It's smaller than an eight pin, and so it's like, well, I mean, this could just be the connector we use. You don't you don't think that's what it is in practice, or uh, what's bad? Yeah, about on paper, it? it's fantastic. So in reality, working with it, it's bad for several reasons. Um, firstly, how it's oriented on the Founders Edition cards. It's very flimsy, and it can easily snap off. Very, very scary when you're trying to work in tight spaces with sleeved cables, right? Um, extremely flimsy. Um, the second thing is that it's a pain in the butt to get the actual materials to make your own cables with. Mm. It requires a really special pin, and unfortunately, most suppliers out there are just selling really small JST connectors. They are not the same thing as the connectors that NVIDIA is specking for it. Um, so it's impossible to get the appropriate gauge, which is 16 AWG wire, <laughs> 16 mm -hmm. on those pins without the correct one. I mean, again, just to be clear to people, this is a connector that's capable of delivering over 600 watts, and it's smaller than an 8-pin. Yeah. So yeah, it's expensive. <laughs> and then finally, I think for it to actually make sense as far as being small and small form factor, then you need to have the power supplies have that connector built into the back. So you can use a straight cable right to your GPU. But right now, that's not what you have. You have all these little dongles of two 8-pin connectors, which is just, it's silly. So I hope that it goes away. I'm glad that the um, AIBs are making just three 8-pins or two 6-pins and an 8-pin on their cards because they're just easier to work with for modding. So That's my opinion. Doesn't no. really matter, but that's my opinion. <laughs> no, but that is interesting, and this is from the perspective of someone actually using it a lot, right? Like for me, I let's be honest. When I saw it, I was like, "That's cool," and then I put in the adapter and <laughs> to an eight pin, which is what all gamers are doing. And I think everyone right now talking about this on forums is just like, "Well, long term, this could make things more standardized and easier," but only if you know. <laughs> only if they can afford to put that high quality of a connector in the power supplies by default, which yeah. I don't know if they will. I see no evidence AMD ever plans to use this connector. Um, and if AMD doesn't use it, and Intel's graphics card's coming out within a year, if they don't use it, then most people aren't using it. I mean, do you think this will be something that gets more adoption then? or I would have thought that it might get adoption if anybody other than NVIDIA was using it for the mm -hmm. founder edition cards. I don't know if there is. You tell me, but I don't no NVIDIA card I purchased from another vendor has it. So. That's true, too. Like, the AIBs seem to be deciding yeah. not to use it as well. Um, I guess that will It's like three times the cost just for the connector. Mm -hmm. I don't know about the electrical design that may complicate things further, so... Well, and before AIB started charging $1,000 for 3080s, you know, to make their <laughs> money back... I will say that the ones that they've put near MSRP, which was the blink of an eye that those existed, um, if they even did exist, arguably, I'm not sure you could argue they did. <laughs> like, I was told the margin on those were tiny. Like, they were not making very much money, and they were unhappy with the models they had to price close to 700 for the 3080, for example. So if that connector adds like 5 or $10 cost, 
No, 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 no. They don't want to do that at all. Like, because they're already eating into tight margins. Yeah, and I know I can't speak to the manufacturers. I get in trouble, but um, some of the partners that I work with, they get the pricing info the same day that everybody else does, which I think is just a cruel joke. Like, you have to have time to know how to price your card so you know what parts to buy, <laughs> how mm-hmm. to make your cooler and stuff like that. So they're, they're always very cost conscious. Well, they can build a battle chest up with prices um, as they are right now. So in the future, you, yeah, if they're not booming right now, they never will be. My God. <laughs> well, all right. So speaking of the cost to make a card, though, the next discussion point I have on the list is kind of what happened to ITX graphics cards. I mean, again, <laughs> I've been in PC gaming for a couple decades or more. But I really got into it around the 7000 series. And I remember back then, there were even low-profile versions of the 7850, the 6850. And I thought those were, I mean, I thought those were so cool, honestly. Um, and there were a lot of ITX and single-slot options back then as well for even high-end graphics cards. You just don't really see them anymore, right? I think we talked about it early up front, but... What do you think's going? I mean, they, 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 for a while, I think MSI always had like a ITX version of whatever the seventy was. I guess I'll say that, but they're pretty much gone. Like, I, why, what do you think that's about? And do you think it's coming back anytime soon? Uh, I do think it will come back. Um, I'm hoping it will come back. Obviously, I'm betting a lot on it coming back. I don't really know the economics behind it, other than I do know a couple executives that still are in the mindset that bigger sells better Mm -hmm. so there's that problem but also i think that a lot of small form factor card makers didn't understand small form factor so they're making these short cards that didn't benefit small form factor cases so the people that survived were a lot of the japanese companies or the the products you find in japan yeah yeah and sparkle and no3d stuff that you can buy over there and um, in America, Zotac. And Zotac just cornered it like a shark and mm-hmm. built cards that actually worked for small form factor. They're always sold out. I don't think Zotac's ever going to stop making them because they're obviously working for them. Those like dual fan um, minis, which I know they had one of yeah. a 1080 Ti. Yeah. Um, 1080 Ti, the 2070 Super. Um, and EVGA, um, like I said, I want to sing their praises. The 3060 Ti XC. Best small form factor GPU ever made from every single dimension and angle and per quality. I mean, fantastic, fantastic GPU. It's only missing one small thing. But other than that, that shows that it could happen. And it's sold out like crazy. I have contacted uh, different retailers like Roadcast and said, you've got to stock this, find these, stock this. And so I know that a lot of people have ordered them. So I think that EVGA will keep making this. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess I'm trying. Can you think of specific examples of ones that didn't hit the mark right and then maybe sold bad and then they took that away as saying smaller doesn't sell well? Like, would it be those MSI ones or what? Every single gigabyte uh, mini ITX GPU. uh, (laughs) They all wanted to make them extremely, extremely tall and extremely short. And, like, what's the point of making that short? It's shorter than the motherboard. It's never. You're never going to be lacking in that dimension. Let's come on, guys. Uh, MSI couldn't figure out where to put their connectors. And so they kept moving them everywhere, which would require a completely different case layout when you got to be super small form factor, nano small form factor. 
Um, they did have a couple cheesy, junky cards. Sorry, MSI, but you got to hit all price points, right? Like dual fan ones that mm-hmm. uh, never sold because they used basically an extrude aluminum heatsink that didn't even cover the RAM. They had leftovers. They did that for the 480 and the mm-hmm. 580. Um, and I think that's why those didn't sell. They were okay, small form factor cards, but just garbage cooler on an old 480 and 580 at that point. So, so those are some examples. But you t- consult the small form factor community before you make a small form factor card. You can charge more for it, a premium, mm. and, and pay for you it. need to know how it's going to fit. Yeah, you need to know how it's going to fit. And don't just assume that, oh, it needs to be the size of the motherboard. No, there's a lot of, where do you put the connectors, how long it needs to be, how tall it needs to be, how thick it needs to be. Um, which direction do the fins need to be oriented, transverse or uh, parallel? These are all really big considerations that you need to make. Well, and one thing I do find funny that you brought up is I've never understood why they make some of these cards so short. Like, I get it's like, oh, it fits uh, on the PCIe, but it's like, yes, but everyone's using an ITX motherboard, and you have those ex- that extra couple inches. Use it, and don't make it thicker either. You have two slots to work with, buddy. You have a very well-defined space that every case will fit. Fill out that space and nothing else, and then use a high-quality heat sink. And you can – it'll work fine. Like It will work fine, guys. Yes. Uh, I think that the, if I was going to just quickly sum up the idea, I don't have a picture with it, but the best ITX form factor ever was the original Nano, the Fury Nano card. Just make it one inch longer. But the position of the connector, everything, fantastic. The heatsink was good. I, yeah, I, I, I actually really do have a lot of love for the Fury Nano. It really was an interesting experiment. That Everything kind of back then was, everything about the Fury series was AMD just kind of throwing stuff at the wall, to be honest. But I had a couple of Fury Nanos, and I remember I did a video at the end of 2019 where, you know, it was after a mining crash, and there were, in bulk, Fury Nano selling for a hundred dollars, and I was like, "Guys, get this! <laughs> this is <laughs> this is basically an RX, uh, like the equivalent of like an RX five ninety four gigabyte for half the price of a five ninety. And though the Nanos had the best bins on memory as well, you could do fifty mm-hmm. percent overclocks to the HBM on some models, which didn't really get you much more performance because they had no, it had no business having as much bandwidth as an Ampere graphics card. But so it could <laughs> exactly, and and like, and you could undervolt it a little bit and get it to just fit in a two hundred. Now again, you needed a decent power supply, but yeah, you'd think that it's a bit of a pity. Well. Actually, this is an interesting question. I don't think the Nano sold that well, or it's hard for me to tell. What do you think AMD should have done better to make it sell well? Because they priced it the same level as the Fury X, despite technically being about the same performance as a Fury, but with a worse... Okay, people would say it's a worse cooler. It's not really. It's just a smaller cooler. It's just smaller. Yeah. It was louder, I suppose, though. But like... What, how would you have handled it? Because I always thought maybe they should have had it use the cut-down Fury die, and then they should have priced it in between those two or, or something. Those are good observations, but for me, I went heavy, 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 heavy into, I think I talked about this last time, the mm-hmm. Fury. You know? um, I promoted it big time. I bought a lot of them. Uh, I pushed for them on the forums. But the problem was they were really wonky, unstable cards for small power supplies. 
and it became a huge headache. And I remember on the hard forum specifically, I ended up buying back uh, a bunch of cards from mm. people that bought it for the mini and it just didn't work out. And I had kind of jumped the gun being so excited about it on paper before actually testing it out. So I got stuck with a lot of them. Um, and it was very expensive for me back then starting out. Uh, it just, it was such a power hungry card. A lot of the cards I had were a little bit flaky, I guess mm-hmm. you could say, even with lots of power, they had weird issues. Um, two of the cards wouldn't run properly. It would always freeze and crash unless you jacked up the anti-aliasing in the drivers to six X and you force override it. Like that's a weird bug. That's a weird bug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm <laughs> speechless by that. Uh, yeah. There, so I had a, probably more experience, I think, as a single person with the, a large amount of those cards than anybody mm-hmm. else I knew. And I, I had a love for it on paper. I, I love the design of it. Beastly card and power. You could tune them all right, but it was very wonky and frustrating to use. And I would never trust it in a client's build that wasn't signing a piece of paper saying this is an experimental GPU that you're only wanting because it is the most powerful thing you can fit in this cubic liters. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it just seems like they should have had a better compromise of practical and performance because I really think, I really do think what they should have done is given it a a cut down die, not the best dies, if that helps them make it any cheaper, I guess is what I'm saying. And then, like we've said, instead of making it that small, just add an inch, put two fans, lower the voltage a little more, or the amperage really is what the problem was, and they could have maybe had something that was in between the like a little weaker than the fury or something, but then they could charge less for it. And it would have been quieter if the fan was a bit bigger. And again, it's, and that was a funny one too, because it's like, how many cases are there that can fit a fury nano, but not a fury X because it was the fury X was pretty small as well. And the liquid cooler, usually it's somewhere to go. Like I, I always came to that conclusion as well as it, you just, most people might as well just get the Fury X even in small form factor. And I think that's what it was. And small form factor was just kind of emerging. Like, when I call small form, this is small form factor, right? Yeah. Uh, a TE-150 is not small form factor. But that's what agree. a lot of people were, were at, you know? And at that point, why would you get the smaller card? It's very expensive, so you might as well get a bigger cooler. So I see. I don't know if it didn't sell well, though, because... I guess I'm just I don't know how many they made. So many small form factor. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how many small form factors. Lots of people bought them, Mm. but lots of people complained about them and wanted to return them or ended up being resold over and over and over again on forums. Mm. Um, So that could be, I don't know. It's two episodes now where we've just lauded (laughs) the Fury Nano. I mean, you're like the person (laughs) I can talk to in that much detail about it. That's why. Uh oh, Uh, what are you doing over there? I'm pulling out the um, the new EVGA GPU, which I love so very much. That's very difficult to get a hold of. But yeah, this is the 3060. Oh, yeah. I did put a link in the description XT for the pictures Super. for people too. Good. But everything about this, there's only one thing that doesn't make sense. You see, this that's the ideal design, isn't it? Two fans, the exact length we said, two slot, that's it. Don't make it a weird shape so it doesn't fit. Make it a rectangle, please, people. Standard height graphics card, 110 millimeters, not yeah. 112, 13. The cooler on it is phenomenal. This thing weighs a ton. It is mm-hmm. chunky, beefy, lots of a huge solid copper plate, lots of heat pipes. The only thing I don't like about it, which they could easily address, put the connector on the end of the card. 
Never do that for a full-size graphics card, but for small form factor, right. put it on the end of the GPU, and it would be absolutely perfect. But Yeah, because there's a lot of cases that want it flush on the side. And and you're right about the big ones, because I've had some big cards. I don't remember which one it was. put it on the card. end. And it's like, this <laughs> now doesn't fit in anything. Like, what are you thinking? <laughs> All right. Well, Cass... Oh. 342 writes in and asks, what do you think would motivate AIBs to make more small form factor graphics cards? I've honestly seen some really cool designs before, like the 1070 Katana, which was a single slot card. I'm interested in knowing what leads AIBs to make these types of design decisions. I think we've danced around this question, but I, I assume there's a more comprehensive answer you could give. Um, they just need to see, they need to make the right card for one. They can't just make something out and send it off to Hong Kong, have Hong Kong dream up something and send it back and say, technically, this small. Um, so that's important. And then they need to actually promote it. And I think that it, I, th I do think that it would sell well because, again, this card is sold out. I mean, all cards are sold out. But this one, people are really looking at this specific model. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that distributors are looking for this specific model because it's so popular. Zotac cards, even the last generation, when they weren't so hard to find, they kept selling out. So I, don't, I do think that they sell well. It's the cards that are small for the sake of being small in terms of volume, but not well-designed. So I think that is what those two things need to happen. Design the card correctly and price it juicy. Make it juicy. Make it an expensive card. Mm -hmm. It's not a cheap card. This should be just as much money as their triple fan card. I'll pay it, and all of my customers will too. Well, the, that's the funny thing as well, is I think a lot of that also just comes from, let's be honest, looking back in the Polaris days, oh, we built this cooler for an RX 560. So why don't we also just use that for an yeah, RX yeah. 570? And I think yeah. like they're, and they'll maybe, maybe the heatsink will be a little thicker or something, but that's typically what they do, I think. And they go, it's small form factor, so they'll buy it no matter what. But then I assume they don't because it doesn't perform well. Um, that's a good point, and I know how difficult economies of scale can be as a small-time uh, mm. case manufacturer, and you couldn't put this on a cheap GPU, right? Because this is a very premium heatsink. Yeah. So there are some issues, but that's, again, why I think that this car should be more expensive. Mm -hmm. Let's just admit it. Nobody wants to pay full price for those Windows 10 professional keys. But shopping for deals on eBay can be a risky process that wastes your time, which is why you should simply just go to cdkoffers.com. cdkoffers.com offers an assortment of Windows software products, Steam games, Origin games, Uplay games, and even games on Xbox and PlayStation. Help out Moore's Law's Dead and save yourself some money by using offer code BROKENSILICON for 25% off all Windows software and die shrink for 3% off everything on the website. Use CDK offers today. Well, so I want to pivot to another discussion here that I think is an interesting development that's truly new since we last talked. I want to talk about the consoles because you could make the argument that they're just getting bigger too. <laughs> like the Series X is smaller than the PS5, yes, but it's still one of the biggest consoles ever made so far. And the PS5 is... I'm looking at it behind me there. I don't know. I think it's technically the size of my desktop. <laughs> you know, maybe thinner, but definitely taller. What do you think about this trend that it's not just gaming PCs? It seems 
But it's also everything having to do with gaming just seems to be getting bigger. Yeah, it's true. Uh, the consoles are massive, and it's no longer a challenge to make something smaller than a gaming console anymore. <laughs> uh, I see a lot of people actually buying gaming consoles and shelling them and putting PCs in them and then doing something else with the parts, which has inspired me to design a PS5 um, case. Because I think the PS5 case is not to my taste, and I know that it might be not to the taste of other people, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, Lee and Lee did that a long time ago with, I think, the Xbox 360. Mm -hmm. They made their own case for it, and um, I want to do the same thing. It'll be like a small, limited-run project, but... Mm, we'll see. I might be actually interested in that. I would definitely yeah. do a video on it uh, if I got it. I mean, yeah, because... You know, it's funny, the PS5 design, just to touch on that for five seconds, I was someone who was like, I'm in the middle. I think everyone either loves it or they hate it. And I've had people see it and go, that looks really cool. I was in the middle of like, it's interesting. I don't really care. <laughs> that was basically my opinion on it. Um, but if it was smaller, it'd, be, it'd certainly be a lot easier to travel with. Yeah, um, smaller. I think one thing, too, is console manufacturers in particular, do have an incentive to make small consoles because shipping, shipping. everything. Yeah. Oh my goodness, it's everything. So I do think that they're going to get smaller as mm -hmm. they can get the next-gen parts at better prices. So. Well, and my understanding for how the PS5 was designed specifically was they just didn't give him a size constraint, the designer, and they said, just make it silent you know, and make it run cool. And it does. It's silent. It is the quietest gaming device I've pretty much ever used, which is kind of crazy for the price um, that they were able to do that. But my understanding also was that the first prototype he presented to Sony was bigger than what it ended up being. <laughs> that, he, <laughs> and, and, and that's the problem, I would just say. Like, I, I, I went to school in engineering. If you give an engineer a set of constraints and one of them isn't there... They may <laughs> go wild with it. Like they said, oh, it doesn't matter how big it is. You know, it just needs to be quiet. And apparently it was bigger than what we even ended up getting. And they're like, well, we didn't think you were just going to make this, you know, the size of a car, dude. And he said, well, you said it could be any size. <laughs> that, that is it's true, by the way. It's a size gaming consoles. Yeah. And, and you have to. And so they actually made him tone it down. I mean. I, I what do you think about that trade-off though with size and quietness? Are you someone that really values a silent PC or does, are you just like whatever if it's a certain level? Uh great, great question. I hate small form factor for the sake of small form factor. I do mm -hmm. like building small tiny PCs and jamming my stuff in it. It's just like it's a fun project, but so many users are obsessed with it's got to be the smallest l number the leader number right mm -hmm. and i think it just needs to be the smallest possible given your goals so what is your goal with the computer okay now make it as small as possible given your goal and quietness silence whatever the correct word for it is is definitely one of my goals i i cannot stand a noisy computer i wasn't always that way but mm -hmm. now i have tinnitus and i'm old and grouchy and i want a quiet computer so absolutely that's my number one priority you know it is funny the older i get the more 
I don't put as much value in more performance for extra noise. Like in college, that before I almost destroyed it, that 7970 that was air cooled, I had a Delta 120 millimeter fan just <laughs> literally against it. And then I had a knob on my case that I could turn to <laughs> up it. And it would, it was literally as loud as a loud vacuum, like a power oh, vacuum. Yeah. And, yeah. but I think, God, what did it move? It moved like 150. Uh, like whatever like i think was it cubic yeah, it must have been cubic feet or something per yeah. second it was like like it like if you hooked it up the fan to the motherboard and didn't put it in the case and turned it on it would start like floating a little bit <laughs> like that yeah you know i had one too uh when i was a kid and you turned that on and it would hover on the table and those things yeah. are heavy <laughs> those things are heavy and so wow it allowed me to overclock when i wanted to <laughs> Like For sure. I could just crank it up and that way it was better than liquid cooling. But you know, I don't, I don't, I don't really push my cards anymore for that extra 10% for noise. I just don't, I don't, I don't really see the value in it anymore. And also, I don't know if it's just that I'm happy with the performance now. Like things are so much stronger than when I started PC gaming that I'm like, well, it looks good enough, but is it really worth the extra noise? Now, that's another great point, though. Like back when we were kids, or especially when I was a kid, because you're a young hen, apparently, <laughs> young chick. <laughs> uh, the performance mattered. Like you actually saw a difference in your video yeah. games. In Counter Strike, you know, Counter Strike 1.6 when it came out, you know, you saw a difference if you were able to get a slightly overclocked GPU or a slightly more powerful processor. Remember, Quake was my big revelation, Quake 3, when it came out just getting a hardware upgrade and, and actually being more playable. Mm -hmm. But nowadays, games come playable out of the box with APU systems. So there's not really as big of incentive as it was back in the day. I think. And I think also it was computers were still so new and the fact that we could tune them was still so new. It was just a really cool idea, a really cool concept that we could play a little bit in the motherboard's BIOS. We could do little things here or there to improve cooling and actually see a visible difference in our video game. It was kind of cool. Well, and you know, I have a 2060 laptop, like I mentioned, and it's funny how, I don't know, it's probably about a third the performance, a third-ish the performance, maybe a fourth in some games of my 3070, but it's like, yeah, I game typically around 4K 100 if it doesn't run out of VRAM with my 3070. And then on my laptop, though, most games, if I'm doing 4K 100 on the desktop, Okay, so now it's, you know, 1440p60 and a thin laptop. Good enough. It looks pretty good while I'm on the go. And I, I never imagined laptops being able to game at that level. And I, I think that level of performance is good enough for most people. I, actually, that, that gets me to another point here I want to bring up. I think, I think there's multiple reasons for why there was a small form factor, somewhat of a revolution like five years ago. I think you had Intel kind of stagnating on quad cores. And so they just kept mm -hmm. using less and less and less energy. And there was, and then SLI and Crossfire kind of went away. So it's like you remove some of the power usage from the CPUs. You remove multi-graphics card setups. You might as well just make it a lot smaller. And then people started having a lot of fun doing that. At the same time, laptops kind of sucked sometimes still. Yes. And especially the top-end laptops. I mean, I mean, the case you held up. That's smaller than game than desktop replacements, and the desktop replacements do not perform as well, right? But I feel like to a certain extent that's changing. When I look at the designs from Dell, Lenovo, and HP right now, 
look, if you want to put a 3080 in a laptop, it's still going to be way too big. But I think, you know, for reasonable prices around a grand now, you can get something that is truly a mid-range gaming desktop level of performance for, well, considering the prices on Newegg. Now, it's probably cheaper than if you were to build it yourself, unfortunately. But I think they're pretty good. And the price performance isn't as good as a desktop, but comes with a display, comes with a warranty. It's a laptop you can bring anywhere with the display built onto it. Do you think that this is bringing more competition in and of itself to small form factor? Have you found yourself sitting there and going, you know, sometimes people may just want to get a laptop now more than they did five years ago? No. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> well, and it is been... your business, so this is kind of a hard yeah. question to ask, but I'm no, curious. It's always been um, the number one competition or the number one sell is, why don't I just buy a laptop? Mm -hmm. And I, at first I struggled with that for seven years. I answered that question every single time a customer would uh, talk to me, but I don't do that anymore. I found my own niche and I don't answer that question because the people that are coming to me already know what they want. They want a small form factor computer. They want to tinker. They want to be able to upgrade it. They want, you know, they, they want a desktop PC. So I'm lucky now I've broken out of that. But to say that it's competition, oh, it's always been competition, and it it will be competition forever and ever. Mm -hmm. The real competition, though, I think I think laptops are going to diminish away, and it's going to be more and more tablet type devices and phone devices. I mean, I'm not. They're going to get the keyboards better for those. <laughs> mm, yeah, I don't. Have... That's an interesting question, and you do see now kind of the beginnings of portable gaming like shout like nintendo switch or playstation vita shaped gaming yeah. pcs as well i mean I, I i don't know would you at least would you at least acknowledge that the laptops now are <laughs> far better than they were five years ago though because i oh, actually think small I, form factor was an easy decision five years ago although i'm sure people asked yeah i'm, I'm not detracting from the appeal of laptops i'm saying that they always have been very appealing compared to the small form factor desktops and they, they perhaps are now as well um so i don't know i'm kind of out of that space i don't want to uh, have to sell people on it anymore if you need a laptop you know why you need a laptop mm -hmm. but if you want one of these things you know why you want one of these things well and i think that yeah I, I think that's why the small form factor community gravitates so much towards shoving as much performance as possible into it. Because, look, I've never understood, like, oh, I made a small... Well, the APU ones are fun because they're also pretty cheap, let's be honest, relatively speaking. Uh, and, the, and because the APUs can clock so much higher in a desktop, they will probably beat half of the gaming laptops. Um, but I think that when you're in the mid-range, that's where the gaming laptops kind of make sense. But the second you start trying to get to top-end desktop performance is where it flips right back over. And it's like, yeah, I don't know why you're trying to shove a 1080 Ti in a laptop guy. Like, with the, yeah. the small form factor PC is actually going to be smaller than that laptop. And, man, a lot cheaper. <laughs> like, Yeah. Yeah. And the, I think another problem with laptops is for a gamer, specifically for a gamer. I went a laptop route for a while. Um, this was a while back, but yeah, you had the performance, the particular generation that I think was Ivy, Ivy Bridge was when I had a laptop, which was a pretty good CPU. That's when things really got good, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I had the, the power was there, but there were so many other things that I just didn't like living with, uh, small things that we don't take for, we 
small things that you don't notice when you're clicking the buy button looking at the spec sheet. Mm-hmm. The hinges breaking, the bezel breaking, light bleed through the panel because you just slightly bumped it in your bag. The keyboards get to be a little wavy and you know soggy, as I call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just small stuff like that. Like the speakers stopped working on two of the laptops I had purchased. And that's that kind of stuff that you just don't want to live with on a day-to-day basis. And then you find yourself plugging in your gaming keyboard and your gaming mouse, you know? Sometimes you find yourself plugging into your desktop and leaving your laptop there next to your monitor for a week straight. And you're like, why do I have a laptop again? Especially now, like when you have a a phone or a tablet for like Mm -hmm. web stuff or talking to people or taking notes in class or business, it's like, why am I carrying around this laptop again? I'm just using it as a desktop and then plopping it down to take notes at school. But I could do that with an iPad or a piece of paper. (laughs) <laughs> that's yeah. why i went back that's why i went back to computers at that or desktop computers at that point because i got sick of replacing the small parts but i will give a shout out to dell um i've owned MS, a lot of msi laptops and a lot of aces laptops and generally speaking they give you the best bang for the buck on a piece of paper so it's mm-hmm. really attractive to gamers um to people on a budget you get fantastic gaming performance at a great price and for dell you get a lot less and you spend a lot more money, and they're a lot bigger for paying to buy. But Dell stuff is built so well on their premium products. I was going to say, compared to 10 years ago, I think both Dell and HP's build quality is like Mac level now, almost. It's it's so much. And so, and that's what I would say, though, is I think how many laptops I had break 10 years ago due to dumb things, like my -hmm. brother's hinge broke on his Lenovo one, and or is it Toshiba one? And then I, uh, you know, sometimes the screen would stop working. One just out of nowhere, the motherboard broke. So it's dead. I mean, you know, all of those types of things would happen all the time. I don't really see that as much anymore, as long as you're getting like an Envy or an XPS, like they're decent brands. They don't seem to break as easily anymore. But I I guess what I would also caution, though, is no matter what, though, the laptop's probably going to break in three years. Something on it will. Uh, or you could bump it, and if one thing breaks, it could just ruin the whole thing. That's the first thing you've got to worry about. And something I've come to terms with recently, well, not recently, but just over and over, and I've just made my peace with it, is you just don't have the same amount of control in a laptop that you do right in a desktop that you choose all the components and install all the stuff yourself. Yeah. Uh, I Like an example... My studio laptop I have, you know, I use screen recording either built into Radeon Wattman or now that I have an NVIDIA graphics card, I use the GeForce Experience for that. Um, But for some reason on the laptop, you can't record desktop. You can record gameplay, but you can't (laughs) click record on the desktop. And I think it's because in desktop, it's forced to use the integrated Intel graphics. And so there's some kind of handshake there that can't happen. And there's also some kind of licensing thing I read that why NVIDIA had to hardwire disable recording desktop. So if I make a video on my laptop, I have to use a third-party app that's lower quality than what AMD and NVIDIA give you. They're, they have very high-quality screen recording. I have to use some lower-quality one on the side there, and that's just the stuff. And you're going to – or overclocking monitors. I like overclocking monitors. You cannot overclock the monitor on an NVIDIA laptop. Maybe you can with an AMD one if it's using the APU. I'm not sure. But you can't with the NVIDIA one because – it technically goes through the Intel output. So the Intel settings are technically what you're using to control the display, and you can't do anything with that. Um, and that includes, by the way, 
maybe setting a higher refresh rate on a desktop monitor it's plugged into. So those types of control things, I, I, I see the mid-range gaming laptops as a good option, but the second you're doing professional stuff too, I think small form factor PC is an obvious option if you actually want to control what you own. Yeah, and I think that's why I end up having customers at the end of the day. But I don't, I'm not trying to sell people against laptops. And that's oftentimes I do recommend a laptop to somebody who actually would benefit from using one. Mm -hmm. Now, Gillespit writes in and says, My first small form factor build was a shuttle PC with an AMD 64X2. I loved how compact it was. What innovations are you looking forward to changing the game in small form factor? Will new standards like ATX 12-volt power supplies or Thunderbolt make it better or worse? Oh, I love this question. Um, first of all, shuttle PC. My man, yeah, I think that was a huge gear turning my head when I saw my first shuttle PC. And uh, to that note as well, the SG, the Sugo 13, it was not the Sugo 13, it was the Sugo 5. The first mini ITX computer case that was mainstream bringing small form mm -hmm. factor to people. And I remember people looking at that and seeing, I can fit a full-size graphics card in this. And uh, wow, small form factor isn't just for my grandma. So that was kind of one thing that was off <laughs> down a little path. Okay, to answer your other question, Thunderbolt, I think everybody was very excited about. I was very excited about as well, mm -hmm. but it didn't really take off. Um, and I'm the guy that purchased a bunch of Thunderbolt accessories. So I'm kind of disappointed yeah. about that. But pushing that aside, uh, GAN, GAN power supplies are going to be absolute game changer for small form factor. How do you spell that? What is it? G? G-A-N. Gallium nitride. Nitrate. I'm not a chemist. Oh. Yeah. But this is uh, going to revolutionize how small you can make power supplies. They're already being used right now and things like phone yeah. chargers. I'm looking at one. Yeah, I'm looking at really high capacity, like 1,000 watt ones in a yeah. small size. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mine and might be, and I don't even know it. <laughs> Mine's 750 it, watts. Yeah, it could be. Um, probably not if you have an SF, like an SFX or ATX power supply yet, but a like power brick. Oh, okay, um, power brick. All right. But they're going to be making power bricks when they become a little more cheaper. They, they already do. They're just too mm -hmm. expensive, I think, for them to include on a laptop. But, in fact, the thing I'm really excited for right now is the fact that we're going to be able to take a power supply like I have right now and be able to make it literally, literally half the size and combine both aspects of it. And that's going to be amazing. So that would be a technology that I think is going to push small form factor forward for sure. Yeah, I think this is one here. I'm looking at a Superflower one that's uh, SFX and 1,000 watts. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty small for that. I didn't know these existed now, but I guess... Yeah, I, I, man, that... Because, yeah, so much of the space that is just not needed to be taken up is that power supply half the time. And, mm -hmm. yeah, that could, I can, and <laughs> with how small you're making your cases, I can imagine this could cut off like a fourth of it. It's, it's, I'm really excited about it. <laughs> um, so let me see here. Another question. Robo Jim writes in and asks, for Josh, does he think it would be better for small form factor designs to try to keep pushing into the direction of less expensive cases? that are more widely available, like the Cooler Master NR200P? Or do we need more high-end boutique options that are more specialized, like the Winter Design Winter One, for instance, that cater to a more narrow use case? Both. Uh, and what you see happening is there's the innovators. They'll make and design the next small form factor layout that's awesome. 
it'll be really expensive and only the enthusiasts will be able to afford it. Um, which by the way, we're not making a lot of money on these cases. They're so small run. Yeah. Right. Um, but then as they catch on the big manufacturer will be like, that was a great idea. And you saved us a lot of marketing and research and development. And then they will make a cheaper case, which everybody can afford. I think that's a good thing. Um, you see that with, of course, the Color Master example that you um, point out. That's basically what that's an in case, right? It's a it's an in case that's they took their time with. They figure how to price it correctly or not correctly, but so the most amount of people could afford it. They got all the major features correct. It's kind of a bummer for in case. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it, it's it's that's what's going to happen. And it's going to happen with the mini as well. I I I know that. I do have some patents, but I mean. What does that mean in 2021? So it's a good thing. It's a good thing that everybody has access to a particular layout or design or innovation. I just want the creators to be able to at least recuperate their um, research and development <laughs> yeah. costs before they get ripped off. <laughs> but luckily, I'm, I'm almost there with the mini. So, Well, and I think, I think that is an interesting question, too, because I think you see a lot of great boutique cases, but then the mass market ones, for me, always seem to have some giant corner they cut that makes absolutely no oh, sense yeah. to me. It's all of them except the new Cooler Master case. I would actually recommend the Cooler Master case. That's like, a good. That's a good. Case. QH Freddy writes in and actually says one of my yeah. pet peeves with small form factor cases is that so many of them try to do too many things at once and end up cutting quarters on something important like cooling, trying to get a GP or CPU pull air through restrictive mesh or something or the size. Think of how many ITX cases could easily fit an MATX system in them. Yeah, that one's my biggest pet peeve. When I see something that's limited to an ITX motherboard, but it's bigger than my micro ATX case. It's the totally. thing I've ever seen. Uh, he says, how do you think trying to make large production run mass produced cases played into this? Do you think that the rise of more boutique cases is solving that over time? I want to make sure I understand the question correctly, but the way I understand it now is I would say yes. The boutique cases are helping because it allows innovators to focus on one particular feature, get it out there, test it, in the community, see if it's something that's valuable, and then it'll be adopted maybe by another boutique builder. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, the mass-produced cases will catch on. Unfortunately, and we are seeing a shift. I think mass-produced cases, the engineers are getting to be, or the companies, are going to be a lot smarter, and they're building better cases. But it used to be, like, if you wanted a case design, you said, hey, we want four cases designed. We want them in these relative sizes. And then they'd go off to an engineer in Hong Kong or wherever, who had free reign and they would basically submit to the factory and they'd get made and shipped off. But it wasn't like a, a design team that was really hands-on looking at the product and doing installs and sending them out to enthusiasts. But now there's more of that. There's a lot more of that. So that's the good news. I think that the small form factor indie case makers are bringing up the quality of the mass-produced stuff for sure. You know, I kind of want to dig in on one aspect of that a little more, though. Like, well, a pet peeve of mine, in addition to the just ITX cases that are in general horribly organized, is when you see this can fit three full-sized hard drives. And I just go, why are you trying to make it small form factor? That's a pet peeve of mine. I would even go as far as to say that building around the acceptance of an ATX power supply in 2021 doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There are plenty of high capacity, smaller ones. I didn't even know they already were making 1000 watts. I thought 800 was like the limit now. Um, like what co corners or decisions do you see made in these cases that try to be small 
that you think are just the wrong decision and it's very prevalent? Uh, bullet points. Let's fit as many bullet points on our white sheet as possible. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, the people that are running the operation, they aren't necessarily hands-on on the product. So when they look at a product sheet and they're saying, wait, it doesn't have all these features on it. It needs to have these features on it. And engineers are like, well, we don't really want that for this. And like, why? That's kind of my gut feeling on it. But I agree. They try to put things in the product that don't belong there. Um, the second thing is that it blows my mind how many case designers, or not case designers, but company, big companies mm -hmm. that make a big compute, uh, all these computers don't bother to look at the hardware that's available. What's the current trend in the GPUs? How tall is their GPU? Where are the fans lo located? And incorporate that into their small form factor design. So they'll... I don't want to really harp on a particular brand. That'd be kind of dirty of me. But there is a company out there who generally gets things right. But they worked with um, Intel on a, on, a, on a product, a case. And they just went by the Intel specifications for their ATX hardware layout, which is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in my life when designing a computer case for enthusiasts. Because Intel specifications are not going to take into consideration the fact that car GPUs aren't exactly this big and this size and have a fan mm -hmm. exactly right here and blow out this direction. And the case ended up being horrible and it was panned pretty much universal. So that's look at, if I was going to give some tips, it'd be look at the current generation of hardware because your case can be um, tuned for that current generation of hardware and you can just update it with the next one. Right? So make sure that it's going to fit the graphics cards and the hardware and the very popular motherboards and whatever the trends are. It's number one. Number two, when you make the thing, test it. Actually build it yourself. Build it yourself. See how difficult it was to route that cable that looked like it was going to fit perfectly in the computer. When you stick your hand there, it cuts it up. Just build it yourself. The engineers need to sit down and build their computer cases. And I know for a fact that some don't because... Oh, yeah. There's no other way some of these what? things could be possible if they weren't, you know? Yeah. And number three... Don't try to fit everything in the kitchen sink in it for the bullet points. You know, just focus on doing what's good and what's necessary. And a great example, I really like the TE 150. I wouldn't consider it a small form factor, but it knows what it wants to do and it does it really well. You know, it's for a tower cooler. It's oriented in a specific way. Has that channel of air in the back. Mm -hmm. Supported decent sized graphics card. Doesn't worry about liquid cooling mounts. Doesn't worry about hard drive mounts. And just focus on tuning and making that case right. And they did a great job. We had an exa another example. And it sold I can gangbusters because of it. <laughs> like, what really bothers me too is when a case is almost perfect, but then there's just some crazy oversight. Like I was, while you were talking, I was trying to remember what the name of it was. It was Node 202. I had a Node 202 ITX case, which I think, in terms of footprint, for a few years ago, was really good for how big of a graphics card it could fit. But for some reason, on the graphics card bay. They only had the, an opening on one side for the fans. And I drilled a pattern of holes in it myself because I eventually went from a blower cooler to a non-blower cooler. And if they mm -hmm. would have just had a mesh on both sides, it could have just pulled air straight through the whole case and it would have been cooled fine. Like Those types of decisions to me are absolutely mind-boggling. And it's kind of a bummer, too, when you have a case like the Node 202, which has those plastic side panels, and then you're committed. You can't make changes to the elastic side panels. You've already ordered 400 million of them. 
<laughs> or like 10,000 of them. Or is it oh, a yeah. metal part? Well, then you could adjust it if you wanted to. It's a, but yeah, so it's, it's crucial to get those kinds of decisions correct out the gate. <laughs> and if they had just tested it beforehand, looked at the different parts available in the market, I think they could have come with that decision. But still a good case. And I don't want to harp on any particular brand or model or anything like that. Well, you know, that's an example where I'm sure they said, well, people use blower coolers for small form factors, so we don't need to worry about that. And then you go, yeah, but did it cost you, would it cost you anything to put a vent on the side? <laughs> like, relatively speaking, no. So why aren't you, you know? And it is confusing to me as well um, how some, I, I don't have insight into how practical design designs right. cases, but it's fascinating to me how they have some cases which are, truly designed by experts mm -hmm. who build this stuff every single day. And you're like, man, you nailed every single aspect of this case you built. It. And in other cases where it's like, you've never built in this case. <laughs> Again, I, I'm not sure you've ever built in a case ever. <laughs> yeah. Like it's like a design team is split or something on it. I don't really, I don't, I don't get, but it'd be interesting for me to um, understand that. And of course I'm not perfect. Right. I have, I've made so many errors in my computer cases over the years, and luckily I have a great community that I can point them out and I can iterate. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that I'm free of it, but building your own case, that's really, really important. <laughs> All right, Before so Rob Giltrap writes in, and he asks, if you could flick a switch and have the industry settle on a small form factor motherboard size, would it be mini ITX, mini DTX, or one of the newer, even smaller form factors? Why would you settle on that size motherboard? Um, if this is like an impractical question, like a dream rainbow type of question, stars. And yeah, unicorns. let's make it a dream rainbow. Let's get some unicorns in here. Yeah, I would uh, go with uh, Azrock's form factor for sure. Is that the the extended micro STX? STX. Yeah. Well, they have they have STX and they have the extended one with the GPU. Uh, for MXM cards, that one's really cool. In fact, um, I had as my first prototype an S4T that has built-in power supply, a 1080 and 9900K. Back when it was relevant, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. In my prototype, so that was really cool. But I don't, I wouldn't go there. I would actually say STX. And if you look, not to promote myself, but if you look on my YouTube channel, I did a mod, and it was called. Project you're allowed Ion. to promote yourself, by the way. You're certainly allowed okay. to if you're a guest. <laughs> But it was an STX motherboard with a full size, I think it was a 5700 XT mm -hmm. by Sapphire Nitro. And it shows you that they pair perfectly well together. There's no reason why we couldn't um, switch over to that um, form factor. I think a lot of people would ask, well, can it fit a full size uh, 16X GPU slot on it? And that, I'm not sure, but they've also done some other magic. But using the breakout cables, the M.2 adapters, the performance, I think, is fine. You don't get full bandwidth yet. Maybe it'll be a problem down the road. But I think that's what I would do. So just for those listening, is this a little smaller than ITX? Let me then? grab one for you. How about yeah. that? Okay, so this is the um, okay. STX MXM board. This is the one that accepts the MXM boards, the GPUs. Do you have an and ITX this board is next to you as well? I'm not being too annoying with you, am I? <laughs> no, no, no. Let's see if I have one. Yeah, okay. So here is... Your ITX. Right. Here's your STX. You could smaller. fit a full 16 if you tried. Oh, physically, absolutely. 
you know, I don't know about the the technical details, but physically, you absolutely be more could. expensive. But yeah, and uh, this is their really great board that housed the MXM board, the, the GPU on it. But look at this! Look at this! Just the options you had four Ultra M.2 slots, mm-hmm. four on a board. <laughs> great I/O. I mean, these things are fantastic. Oh yeah, and I see that extension thing there for a graphic. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I've always thought that as well, that if you were to have a dream small factor, form factor motherboard, it, you could go smaller than ITX. You really could. And that's small enough. I mean... Yeah, it's small enough while being big enough to actually have all the I.O. that you actually need. Mm-hmm. So, I'm all for it. Now, I guess let me ask a more interesting question. Uh, as a follow-up so stx obviously we could do it they could find it'd be expensive probably to do the tracing of the wires on it for a pcie times 16 but i'm sure they can now like if you did that do you would you then say let's also get rid of itx and dtx and make micro atx more available because micro atx is almost dying i swear like you know like what would be your solution then should there be a dtx that's in between it or like a smaller version of micro atx or what would you think should be in between atx and uh stx um nothing you don't think so purpose for it no in fact i think that micro atx is completely obsolete has been for some time and i see a lot of cases do it wrong where they make a case that's for micro atx board but there's literally no trade-off to making it an ATX size. Because at that point, <laughs> you're already going to be long enough and wide enough. If you had two inches, then you get to have the best selection of motherboards. You get those extra slots. It's not taking up any actual physical volume on your desk. No, it's There's thin, no yeah. purpose of a micro a- ATX board anymore. So I, I can't see a reason for it. And the DTX boards... I have tried very hard to come up with a computer case design that actually makes use of those two extra slots. And I, I haven't been able to, and I haven't seen anybody else make an interesting computer case for it. So I'm not sure this is like a, a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. (laughs) I think, well, I've got a DTX motherboard and what they did with the extra length is put in a sound card. Yeah. The little sound card, the Asus did that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm but, like, but that was the only one that did anything with the extra space. I swear to God, everyone else just wasted it. But they don't need to really even do that, right? They could. I've seen they could probably have found similar sound cards, yeah, stacked on top of the M2 slot. Like, uh, yeah, Asus has one or had one for their X570 a while back, right? So I don't see why they couldn't just use Mini ITX. So. I think practically the solution is that ITX is the best compromise already. It's well established, works well. Mm-hmm. Manufacturers stuff a bunch on it. But if I had to snap my fingers, everybody would be wearing candy cane hats and sparkly tennis shoes. It would also use STX boards. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I do believe a year and a half ago we talked about how micro ATX was dying, and there was a bit more of a discussion about if it should. And it seems like now your opinion is, yeah, we don't need it. Like there's just no. And 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 it it is an interesting point. I have seen small form factor ATX builds before, but they're really rare. There could be more of them. There's no reason you couldn't make most M- micro ATX cases fit an ATX motherboard if they would have put effort yeah. into it. Yeah, totally. I mean, 
let's be honest, the T150 should have a, a full ATX motherboard support. Mm-hmm. An extra three inches to the top. Yeah. It's not to any more space in your desk. <laughs> and if you want to make it a little shorter or thinner to make up for it, you can. In terms of overall volume, it, it really adds just about nothing for a mountain of extra options when you're building a PC. Yeah. Um, so AC666 writes in and says, Hi, Tom and Josh. I guess I have two questions here. With DDR5 and PCIe 4 slash 5.0 reducing trace lengths, one DIM per channel, do you think we'll see more mainstream cheaper boards catering to micro ITX out of costing constraints? Or would board vendors just be more selective with PCIe version selection? And do you think we'll ever see the PCIe expansion port, the Oculink, like on the Rome D4 ID2T or something similar come to consumers in some fashion? And I, and I will add on to that first question he asked. I have heard that specifically Zen 4 motherboards are having trouble with PCIe 5.0, that they already had some problems with 4.0 because of the signal integrity you need to keep. And that 5.0, they're, they're legitimately worried about having two 5.0 slots on an ATX board, that they might have to make the second slot 4.0. This question is way above my realm of expertise. <laughs> so I have no, no idea how to answer that question, so I'm not going to. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, you know, then I think I can. What I would say is the way I would put it is this. Do I think when Zen 4 comes out and Alder Lake comes out and they have PCIe 5.0 support, do I think those boards are going to be cheaper than the previous gen? No. <laughs> do I think that there will be less of a markup on the ITX side because it's so much easier with the to keep signal integrity in a smaller design? I think think so yes i think the atx ones make it really expensive actually it could be um as far as price goes but look at the history of many itx boards the the consumer the enthusiast level itx boards are always ridiculously expensive yeah mine was buck for buck <laughs> right with the atx boards not the flagship atx boards the ones where they throw all the bells and whistles mm-hmm. but the enthusiast grade ones so they're always going to get as much money as they can for it. But ITX is not a budget-oriented product, and that's what manufacturers need to get through their heads because we're underserved customers. Mm-hmm. We're willing to, to shout the money for the right product, the quality product. So I will say one thing. I'm scared if they're having trouble with uh, PCIe 5 because we still don't have risers for Gen 4 yet, like true yeah, certified risers. I have one. There's, there's, yeah, there's a couple of them out there, but um, I, I have risers made for my um, case from the top mm-hmm. two riser makers, and they're telling me that there's not a, really a way to get them certified and actually working at certain lengths um, to where they could pass the certification standards. Oh, yeah, mine's they, a they, short riser. I specifically got a short one because I knew that yeah. I didn't want to even mess with a full 16 4.0 that's long because <laughs> I'm sure it would have problems. <laughs> yeah, and that's what they're telling me. It's like, well, technically... These three vendors that you see on Amazon that are have a maroon color in them, we won't name the brand, they're not actually uh, certified either for PCI Gen 4. They just, they just work in most use cases. But also, mm-hmm. the risers that we're selling you sometimes work, depending on the motherboard and the graphics card, if yeah. you don't run them in Gen 4. So, but the, the problem is there's not really a, a widespread solution yet for it. So that's, that concerns me. I thought we well, were going to have them in. Yeah, and if you think they're having a problem with 4.0, what do you think is going to happen with 5, you know? Yeah. Maybe maybe there'll be some switch where they figure it out and so it isn't as much of an issue. But 
Yeah, I think the riser thing is going to be a big problem with 5.0. And that affects my business and small form fa- all the whole small form factor enthusiast community if we can't have risers that can match the bandwidth that we need to get the performance advertised out of the graphics cards. Right now, it's not a problem, but it could be a problem very quickly. And I would, and I would you know, say the good news is this. There are no 5.0 graphics cards yet, and I do not believe there will be till mid-2022. So I think there's time for those to start existing, is what I would say. But there's probably going to be some lag you know, there with Alder Lake, where Alder Lake, technically, you can't put a PCIe riser for 5.0 if you wanted to put that in small form factor. But then the argument will just be, yeah, but guys, there aren't any 5.0 graphics cards yet. Um, Brian Fish writes in and says, my question centers around APUs as the core of a small form factor build. How far are we from retail APUs being viable for 1440p gaming? Are RDNA 2 IGPUs sufficient? Will they be sufficient? Or do you think we'll have to wait for RDNA 3 or beyond? It seems to me that even overclocked an APU would be more thermally efficient. Um, I might not be the best person to answer this question, but I would say that we are there. Um, specifically this year with Ryzen Pro with the 4750G, that's a real CPU. Finally, we have a real CPU with pretty decent graphics. And I play the games that I play. I'm kind of embarrassed now to say I play a lot of Blizzard games, mm-hmm. play Civilization, play a lot of indie games. I play at 4K60 and uh, with the settings turned up, and it's beautiful. So as far as 1440p, 100 FPS, well, I mean... Are you playing games like CSGO or Overwatch? Because I think that that is also a solution. But if you're trying to play um, games like Call of Duty Modern Warfare mm-hmm. or the Project Red game, which is now blanking from my mind, Cyberpunk, is that yeah. then probably no. You're, you're, we're not quite there yet. But it does run it. I, um, I run it at 4K. I just turn the settings down. So... I think we're there. I just we need to be more less greedy when it comes to enabling all the different options in the graphic settings. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and in terms of the question, like when will there be an APU as strong as a mid-range graphics card? I would just say, I mean, there Never. is. Well, the, the PS5 and the Series X, like they are, <laughs> they just need to okay. actually put them on AM4 or AM5. Like that's all it would take is they just, and, and it probably wouldn't fit on the AM4 socket, but they could fit something most of the way there on there once DDR5 comes out. It's just AMD has to actually do it. They've had the yeah. technology to make it for years. They just yeah. don't think the market's there. And that's what I mean by never because tech, <laughs> the tech is there. It just People and that's why I'm hoping that the Ryzen Pro is going to sell like gangbusters, but it's probably not selling like gangbusters because I can get a hold of it pretty easily, and they're not re- in retail. You know, you have to go through an OEM. Well, yeah, and that's I think that's because they can't even supply enough of them to laptop makers that same APU that would go on you know an AM4 board, and so that's I think that's why they never released it to Newegg. Um, the one thing I would say is that with how expensive silicon costs are getting, I actually think that lower, or how would we put this, almost mid-range graphics card performance APUs will probably become a standard as the alternative for the low-end gaming. Though you you would argue it already is, right? Like you know, but as a more ubiquitous standard within a couple of years, I just. So I guess to answer his question, I mean, I think we might see something weird earlier, but I think by late next year, there could be some funky APU. I really think there could be by late next year. 
All right. Well, I've got a couple of wrap-up questions here. I think we've covered pretty much everything having to do with the state of small form factor. I mean, I, I guess just to round that out real quick, I mean, you would say small form factor, as far as you can tell, is pr- still as popular as ever, though, and this hasn't really changed at all. Uh, yes. Um, 2020 was bad for a lot of people, and it was bad for me in some ways, but not as far as customers wanting small form factor. And I think that my business grew as mm. far as customers wanting small form factor. Now, getting them small form for the computers, that was a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. But the customers, the customer base grew. Okay. All right. Well, Mia writes in and asks, if you could take time off to learn a technical skill related to computer hardware, whether, you know, shader programming or silicon layout, and you think it might affect the channel, would you? If so, what would the skill be that you feel would help your channel or your business the most? Okay. Is there um, any other skills you'd want to learn in addition to what you're doing now? I mean, I, I assume you pretty much <laughs> you've been doing this for a while. I do so many things so poorly. You know, I really need to learn how to do one thing really well, to be honest. But if I had to pick a new skill to learn, it would probably be PCB layout. So I could make mm. small little parts like uh, 180 degree risers myself the for specific, specific mods or for customers that are ordering like 100 cases that need to fit in a certain module in their 18-wheeler. So mm-hmm. something like that. PC, basic PCB layout. And I've stepped into Eagle. I've tried the Fusion 360's PCB stuff, but it's uh, slow for me with how spread I am. Eagle. I think I've used that you know, in college, actually. Um, I designed one PCB, and it looked really cool on paper, and I barely got it working at the end because it was too compact. <laughs> <laughs> the the weirder the shape you make it the more it's like well this works on the design but uh <laughs> oh then the person went to manufacture it and nothing's plugged in that's cool um <laughs> dr deep writes in and asks josh your first wait you your cases first caught my eye about two years ago and were part of what got me interested into pushing new form factors and designs i'm a new case designer myself that plans to enter the market with my first design in june or july of this year What are the best things I can do to get my case into the hands of reviewers and in the public eye? What are some common pitfalls to look out for as a small startup in this space? Oh, congratulations on the work that you've done so far. And I'm really excited that somebody else is kind of entering the ring. It's a, it's a very fun project that you've undertaken. Um, If I had any advice for you, to start with, it's that don't be concerned with getting your case into the hands of reviewers first. Mm-hmm. That's not what's most important. You need to be completely sold on your case and be willing to back it up 100%. And to do that, you want to get into the hands of real enthusiasts who can sit down, tear into it, and give you good feedback. And get your case right the first time. And I will tell you this, because I make this mistake every time, and I've gotten better because I've been making cases for 10 years, is that as soon as you finish designing the computer, you're in love with it. It's your baby. Mm. It's perfect. Nothing's wrong with it. It's going to work perfectly when you go to manufacture it. And that's completely and totally untrue. It's almost never there's gonna true. Be, yeah, it's gonna be, there's going to be hundreds and hundreds of problems with it that you can't even foresee until you actually start prototyping it. And even after you get the prototype, the next level of a pain in your butt is going to be manufacturing. Because then making a prototype and then actually producing Mm -hmm. it with the tooling, completely separate things. And there'll be a whole other set of problems you need to find out. So you need to get on that early and do lots and lots of testing. Spend $10,000, $10,000 prototyping. 
because it's going to save you that money on the back end. I know it's a lot of money for someone just starting off, but I, I, it would, I'd be so much further ahead if for the first cases that I started with, I just spent that money to get it right. Hire an engineer to look over it. It doesn't have to be really expensive, but just say, look, how can we cut costs just by changing the radius of this corner, just the teeniest, tiniest amount to match this, the tooling that the manufacturer has? Yeah, It's totally worth it. So get your product right before you send it to reviewers. I get this question so many times by people wanting to make their own cases. They get ahead of themselves, and then they end up making a product that fades away a month later. And that's not what I want for you, and that's not what you want for yourself. So get your product right, spend the money, get the prototypes done, and then go to the community. Go to different forums, show off your product, say, I've tested it, I've prototyped it, um, I've built in it, and now it's I want you guys to see it. And then do limited runs um, on the forum. Like, give them away, sell them for cheap, yeah. get the feedback. And at that point, once you've gotten all that ready, work out your logistics. That is the biggest part of small form factor or making a case and selling it is how do you get that product made and into the hands of your customer? And that is never looked at by the people that come to me wanting to build their own case. And I didn't look at it myself, but that is so, so, so important. You'll see Kickstarter after Kickstarter, they'll get the manufacturing done. They'll get the marketing done. Well, well in mass manufacturers, you'll find a partner, I'm sure, who will say, yeah, I'll build this thing you got me. Mm -hmm. But once they build the tooling, once they start doing it, it's too late. And all they want is your money. They don't, they, they, you know, obviously they want it to sell well, so maybe they can get more after that, but they will make what you tell them to make. And so I think, yeah, what you're saying is you have to make sure that what you want them to make, you're sure that's good because people will take your money and start building things. It's you who has to make sure it's ready. And that requires criticism from your community. Involve them as soon as possible. Yes. And one last thing to be aware of, because I could talk literally for two hours about this, is manufacturers that make cases are using you yeah. to test future products out. So be aware of that. Um, I'm not saying don't work with a big manufacturer. You probably much, pretty much need to, mm -hmm. but it really helps to have your case right before you go to them. <laughs> so they don't. Help. So they're not involved in the process because then they'll write down all the notes of what didn't work. And you don't want to do a Kickstarter and Indiegogo, and you don't want to necessarily get your product out there in front of reviewers because they don't. If your case is really popular and you get a lot of orders and that's public, and you're not at the point where you can actually deliver cases yet. Oh. They're going to be tooling up and they're going to be making their own and then you're going to launch and then you're going to be competing against your own case. So that's why I haven't done a Kickstarter or anything like that. And I've been self-funded because I don't want to have to deal with that headache. That's actually almost invaluable <laughs> advice you just gave him, honestly. Um, yeah, again, I would say just the more iterations you can get in anything you make with a community is more important it feels like you're wasting money and giving it away, but like, well, you just get ready for how much money you're going to end up spending by the end anyways. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to spend, you're going to spend a hundred thousand dollars making a computer case. Yeah. So, so might as well not be $200,000 cause you messed up. I messed up give, on the give S14. 10 away, right? Give 10 away for yeah. 50 bucks, a hundred bucks each, whatever it's, it's worth it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So final question. Hi, Josh. Does it keep you up at night knowing that the perfect small form factor case has already been created and never will be improved on the KFC PC? <laughs> and my only regret is I didn't wait till April's first to release it. 
Um, but yeah. Well, they can't because it apparently is real. So yeah, it's it's real. It's real. Um, I, I think another one that I really liked was, I think that no, it was Corsair, right? Corsair did the beige case, like an Obsidian D beige, mm-hmm. and that didn't end up being rare, real. But that was my runner-up for <laughs> perfect case. But what if we're going to do a food Obsidian D and beige. It was a Corsair did an April Fools. I don't know if it was on April Fools, but it was a case that they a retro throwback case in beige of the obsidian D and it was beautiful. I was all over it, but apparently it was supposed to be a joke because who wants beige these days? I'm like, man, that is, that's how you do a retro case. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. You know, the KFC one's real, so they can't do it yeah. on April 1st. Yeah. And that is funny. Can you buy though, them? When... Can you actually buy one? <laughs> so here's they the just thing. Make they say it's real. They say they're selling them, but I'm not, let's see, when was this article? I don't, think they're technically on the market yet, but they insist they're going to be real and have a vent for heating your chicken from the case. KFC console, Cooler Master. <sighs> technically, you can't buy it yet. They insist it's real, but... It's I, the funniest product ever, because, like, aside from the fact that it's obviously two different things that don't go together, it's chicken, it's fried chicken. How are you going to game and eat fried chicken and then touch your keyboard? But I love it. What a great idea. Yeah, probably not the ideal food to eat while gaming. Very fun. I would think about Do- Taco Bell, personally. I think that would be, you know, gamers and Taco Bell go hand-in-hand hand together. And you could put your seven-layer burrito in there and actually kind of eat it. Maybe, maybe that's should, the perfect maybe, maybe you should, case. You know, I believe it's the same company that owns KFC <laughs> and Taco Bell. Oh, there you go. <laughs> maybe you should be reaching out to them, man. This could be your next venture, <laughs> the Taco Bell case. <laughs> <laughs> in conjunction with the creators of the KFC case and NFC, <laughs> the burrito case. Well, you know, right. I actually did the Doritos Locos Taco. I know they say it's some other guy, but I've been saying, you know, they should make taco shells out of Dorito chips since I was a child. So uh, who knows? It might be the next perfect partnership. That's why the company motto at NFC Systems is ideas are worthless because your idea doesn't mean anything. It's the hard work and effort to make it real. I should have been the one to go to Taco Bell and present to them my genius Doritos Locos taco idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that was a pretty good question to end on then. Um, is there, you know, before I go, is there anything else that you wanted to discuss? Ask me any subjects we didn't cover. No, I had fun. Thank you for inviting me. I mean, I could pimp my product a little bit. More. I was going to say, then please plug your website. There'll be links in the description, of course, for most of it. I think I already have it, but tell people who, where can they find your stuff? Um, I have a YouTube channel, not from Concentrate. Um, I, that's where I do my big updates. I try to focus on kind of higher quality videos that don't release quite so often, um, but I'm even slow at that. And of course, I have a website, nfc-systems.com. My big community is the Discord community, which you can get invites to on the YouTube channel, and I'll also give one to Tom so he can put it in there. But it's mm-hmm. a real community because it's full of people that know what they're talking about, unlike me, and are willing to help newcomers, which is important when you're putting together small, complicated computers. And uh, the S4T will be launching soon. I'm aiming for a delivery, like starting shipping in May. And I'll probably take pre-orders sometime in April, but I'm not quite there yet on the back end. So thanks for being patient on that. Well, that's probably pretty good timing, though. I mean, hopefully... People will be able to go outside more this summer, and right when they do... No, it's terrible for my business. 
<laughs> Corona 2.0, baby. <laughs> no, I'm teasing, of course. Yeah. No, yeah. I, but the, yeah, I mean, I, the, I almost could get into a whole other subject about why the market was up despite being inside. But well, I guess we'll just leave it at that. You'll be able to bring his case with you when uh, you guys are going out this summer. And um, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Tom. The following podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and select technical editing by Carbon Cry. You can find all of our information, including how to get a hold of us, at www.moreslawsdead.com. And if you are a fan and would like to send mail or other hardware, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead, P.O. Box 10468, Peoria, Illinois, 61612. And speaking of fans, without exaggeration, the patrons are responsible for the continued distribution of the content you just listened to. And so if you have some extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon Die Shrink and Loose Ends, and of course the Moore's Law is Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you. I am one of them. And at higher tiers, you get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the back catalog of Flyover States podcast, thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts and other perks as well. And if you cannot afford to support us, please just share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media and Reddit. And give Broken Silicon and Flyover States a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All of this really does help so much more than I think anyone realizes. If you'd like to advertise on the podcast or a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its fans supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Medlin, Telos, GUK, Benny Berlin, Justin Yant, Thomas Rupp, I Love You, Lynn, Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Muhammad Al-Kawari, Frederick Lau, James Crasser, Justin Parrish, Zachary Martin, Terrence Heron, Drita Full, Phil S, Courtney Elliott, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegar, Josh Law, JBG, Travis Gooding, The Mechanical Philosopher, Lebo King Kilo, Fatboy Disaru, Daniel Hyde, Burke Garcia, Tara Reed, Jack O'Neill, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Son Garcia, Sean Vollmer, My Name is Nobody, Joel Corey, Alethros, Telos, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchuk, Ivan 214, John Jameson, Benjamin Cannon, Matthew Lane, Divider Symbol, Jan Rattle, Robert Ducks, Michael Maggie, Allie Robertson, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Patrick Grow, Evan Dingle, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Arts, Hardforum.com, Sam McArthur, Total Silo, Sol Connor, Michael Costa, Andrew S., Blake, Aaron Keith, Kerry Baldino, Endless Loggins, Tom San Filippo, Justice Brennan, Viking R., Trevor Power, Stu, Alenia, Nanyan, Daniel Nishpal, Franco Frederick, Dan Galinowski, Alex Karras Steele, Dark Rain 2049, Lane Perry, Joseph Kierman, Carlos Faldos, Carnivore Bear, Denovan Russell, Zabra Z Birds, Licky, Man Porsche. David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Spencer King, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Canos Jr., Stephen Coates, Kiwi Phil, Dahoo Who, Sarah Light, Anthony Gareffa, Matthew Griffin, Alex, Joseph Loria, Luis Correa, Deke, Cheesy Ramen, Raul Abeneni, Tim Robbins, Jake Dude 23, Brian Riggleman, Chris Williams, Ryan Deniskew, Dave McCoy, Valco Malev, Gabe Langner, Rodney, Morin Svensson, Andrew, Thomas Summers, Maurice Courtois, Matthew J. Link, Scott Ref Schneider, Mai Sharona, Aaron, Roman, Jacob Scamwicks, Hair Rats, Wakir Khan, Eshildar Epstein, Stephen Hart, Chris 
Christopher A. Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, Chris Licata, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, Sammy Malas, Kevin Chen, Shakira, Nick Rakin, Holden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, Arpit Sharma, Mead and Pork, Jimmy NG, Mads, Beachhorn, Benjamin Oshleys, Jiu-Jitsu, Sean Parker, Dame P, John Wisink, Sam Venzel, Mark Mitchell, Brucha, Michael Deaton, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. 